We're looking at the New Testament, uh, continuing our study of the book of Luke, and we're in chapter 7 of Luke, beginning in verse 24 today. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. As you're turning, let me welcome any who are watching our live stream. Isn't technology great that we can share this moment? But we encourage you to come out to the church on a Sunday and visit with us as you're able. Luke chapter 7, we're just jumping in at verse 24. What's happened just before this is uh, John the Baptist had sent with some questions to Jesus. And Jesus answered those questions and his messengers departed. But Jesus takes the occasion to teach us some very significant things. This is God's word. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say... Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey. Amen. Amen. Jesus is a master teacher. And he's going to explain some things to us that will help us understand who John the Baptist is and the response to him. It's a wonderful thing that Jesus does regularly. How do we figure things out? Let me ask you this by way of introduction. If I had a glass of clear liquid and I said, here is something to drink, how would we know if it's safe to drink? Okay, if your pastor's offering it to you, you would assume. But if, if you're in chemistry class and you're thirsty, and you know the chemistry class has a lot of chemicals around, and some of them are clear liquids, how would you know something is safe? How would you know what's in that glass or in that beaker? Well, 
As I recall, one of my two chemistry classes in high school, we had something called litmus paper that could test the acidity, the alkaline or the acidity of a liquid. And you could see if it's dangerous. Uh, Or even if you're an aquarium user and you want to keep the fish happy, you have to keep the pH in the aquarium balanced. And the water looks like water, but the pH could be too high. The pH could be too low. And so you dip this litmus paper. It's a special kind of paper, and it's got a couple different colors, and it tests it. It's fascinating how God's world has given rise to that. Um, It was back in the 14th century that scientists discovered that litmus, this mixture of organic compounds from a lichen, can turn color when there turns red in acid and turns blue in alkaline solutions. And you can use that to figure things out. But we don't typically have litmus paper at home. Anyone? No. But that became an expression just in recent centuries and decades. An expression that we use in society even today to test. Oh, let's put the, uh, that politician to the test. What's, what's the litmus question? The one question that will tell us all about his politics. And so you can make a judgment about someone or something being acceptable or not. Why are we talking about this? I'm going to submit today in the middle of the sermon that John the Baptist and his baptism, his message, was a litmus test for the Jews. John the Baptist comes at a strategic moment in history. Outwardly, they look like God's people. But John the Baptist is dipped into their midst. And reveals their true color. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And we're not just going to study it and say, oh, that's John the Baptist and that's history. No, I think this is included in God's word for you. That God's word can be dipped into your life. And find out if you are right with God. Of course I'm right with God. I'm in a church. I own a Bible. I'm I'm doing all the religious things that those Pharisees did. We always must be careful and test ourselves according to God's standards. And this will be plain. Why do you think Jesus took time with his gathered disciples? He wasn't here just giving a pep talk about John. He's teaching about the ways of God. How is it God calls people to himself and how those people can know if they're right with God? So there's something here for us. Let's take a look. First thing we need to do is set the stage, even as our Lord does in the opening, verse 24 and following, about who John is. And there are three questions there by Jesus. The first two are written in a way that just begs a negative answer. So I've lumped those together. What are the first two questions about the Messiah's messenger? Well, if you see it, Jesus says, uh, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Okay, that's a reference to John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness by what little river? The Jordan River. And what was he doing? He was baptizing, hence the name. John the baptizer, or JB in my sermon notes. 
he was baptizing and he, he lived in the wilderness. And if you wanted to go to a service where he was speaking, you had to go out into the wilderness. It wasn't just like a, a new church at the edge of town or in the industrial park. No, you made a trek out and then down to the Jordan. Jesus asks, what did you go out to see? A reed? Well, reeds would be there in the wilderness, especially when you got close to the water source. You'd see some greenery and the reeds are there. And what are reeds famous for? Blowing in the wind. No, you didn't go out just to see a reed, something common, something easily swayed if it's a metaphor. No, not, not with John the Baptist. Do you know how John the Baptist uh, behaved and preached? Let's take a quick little uh, uh, trip over to Matthew chapter 3 to see what Matthew described about the ministry of John the Baptism. John the Baptist. Matthew 3 begins this way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And it tells us about his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who has spoken. It goes on to describe John. He's in the wilderness preaching. And he was not easily swayed. And hang on to Matthew 3 for a second. Because the second question of Jesus is, what did you go out to see uh, in the wilderness? Uh, did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Luke records the question. Matthew chapter 3 tells us the answer. If you went out, you didn't see someone in soft clothing. Matthew 3 verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. That's John the Baptist. That's a little odd, even for that day, to take some camel hide. And camel hide wasn't typically made into a garment, just so you have a clue. You might want to think uh, grizzly bear skin or uh, who knows what. No, you didn't go out to see John dressed fancy to see some elite courtier or someone uh, with intellectual ponderings. What did you go out to see? A prophet? The third question. Yes, a prophet. And Jesus says, uh, yes, instantly. A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Let's break those into two pieces. A prophet, yes, we know from Matthew 3 that the ministry of John the Baptist fulfilled Isaiah. Verse uh, 2 and 3 tell us that he had a preaching message, repentance. Verse 3 of Matthew 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. So he is a prophet, and what did Isaiah say about him? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Get ready for the Messiah. So John himself is a prophet who was prophesied by Isaiah. And not only by Isaiah, but by the last prophet, as it were, of our Old Testament. Mike, excuse me, Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 says this, Behold, I send my messenger 
and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That is whom we have in John the Baptist. He is a prophet. And if he's a prophet, you should have listened to him. And the prophet said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But not everybody was receiving that message, as we'll see in just a minute. But the phrase said he's a prophet, yes, and more than a prophet. Okay, what category is that? Prophet plus. Prophet 2.0. No, we don't don't have a, a further description, but he is a very unique prophet according to Jesus. And this is where Jesus quotes Malachi. One of my messengers will prepare the way. He is more than a prophet, as Philip Ryken said, because of Jesus. Ryken says, what made John more important was who Jesus was. The other prophets all looked for the Savior from a distance, but John saw him with his own two eyes. John could point at the Messiah just across the marketplace or across the road and say, as John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John is the ultimate of the Old Testament prophets. John is more than a prophet. We could even say, as one commentator, one scholar suggested this, that John the Baptist is the hinge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is a hinge or strategically placed character in redemptive history. He's not just a prophet. He's really the prophet. We'll see more about this as we move to this second heading about the litmus test. I do see John's preaching and baptism are a litmus test for the Jewish people. The idea first came to me by way of Douglas Milne in his commentary, and I agree. You see, when Jesus describes John the Baptist, he shows John to be that hinge, or to use a different word, to be a signpost to the kingdom of God. Signposts that we we kind of take for granted as we're driving around, especially if we have GPS. Uh, If you miss the sign and you have GPS, the voice will say, okay, turn around. Those signs that tell you what's at this exit. Is this the exit I want? It will say, this exit is for a signpost. That is what John is doing. Because Jesus goes on in verse, the verse numbers are so small, verse 28 I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, almost in the same breath, Jesus says, yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What do you do with that verse? Jesus says in in, in one teaching, John's great, but if you're a Christian, you're greater. What point is he making? He's pointing that John is the strategic character between the Old Testament and the New Testament. A little bit more from Douglas Milne. He said, John the Baptist belonged to the old era that was passing away. Jesus stood for the new era of the kingdom of salvation. Between the two eras, there is a chasm. 
Those who live on this side of Easter and Pentecost are more privileged, enlightened, and empowered than those in John's day. There's something about John and his ministry that is a hinge and a signpost, indeed the open door to what Jesus came to say and do. And it was in that moment that John the Baptist confirms who Jesus is and we, hearing John the Baptist, are ready to receive the message of Jesus Christ. This phrase includes us. The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Could that include you and me? Let let me just pause and, and, and pull aside to make sure you see your privilege. If you're a born again Christian, Jesus says, you've got to step up on John as great as he was. Old uh, Bishop Ryle, J.C. Ryle of Liverpool said this, our very familiarity with the gospel makes us blind to the extent of our privileges. We can hardly realize how many glorious verities of our faith were brought out in their full proportion by Christ's death on the cross and were never unveiled and understood till his blood was shed. If we live on this side of the cross and what you know about Jesus, what you've experienced by the spirit of Christ in the gospel is oh so precious. John was that close. But we're blessed even more. That's a very humbling thought. And I would remind you to whom much is given, much is required. So John is this character, this signpost, and Jesus lingers over him and and talks about him and, and gets our attention that we need to pay attention to who John is and what he has done because he's at this pivot point. And then there's a little bit more material about how John is not just a hinge and a pivot point and a signpost, but John is also a fork in the road for the Jewish people who heard him. There's a significance to the repentance that John called for. And here's perhaps the clearest evidence of this litmus test I'm talking about. Verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors, all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. When, When the people heard Jesus building up John the Baptist... They said, oh, great, because we've followed what John the Baptist told us to do. We have prepared for the Messiah. We've done the repentance, and and we're ready for you, Jesus, your message. And so they're excited. And the calling of John on their lives has come to fruition because they put their faith in the word of God through John. John said this. John was from God, so they did it. Those who were baptized by John were exercising faith in God's message. But the verse goes on. Verse 30, but 
The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. This great prophet, the greatest of all the prophets, on the cusp of the kingdom of God in Christ, was rejected by some of the Jewish leaders, by most perhaps. Indeed, here is a a litmus test. Will you receive God's message in God's terms that we need to repent and believe? Or you say, no, not for me. That's the place of these Pharisees. And let me be clear before we move on that this gospel is as simple as repent and believe. Change your thinking of your self-sufficiency. Change your thinking that you don't have anything to worry about and realize that you are a sinner. You need cleansing. You've angered a holy God. You've not lived for his glory. So you repent, you turn and believe. You say, Lord, forgive me. Lord Jesus, change me. Bring about Something new in me. Give me life for I believe in you. In what you have done. John was a preacher. And those who heard him, some responded. Let's just dip back into Matthew 3 again very quickly. We know from Matthew 3 verse 2, the the synopsis, the headline of John's preaching, repentance. But you know, Matthew gives us a little bit more of a sermon sample. Let's take a dip and see what uh, John talks about. Uh, uh, Okay, Jerusalem came out to him, verse 7. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That was a great sermon. The Pharisees and the scribes heard that. They should have been convicted of their sin. Did I have fruit? Showing my heart was right with God. If I've repented and I'm no longer living for myself and living in sin, what do I see in my life? But that preaching did not awaken those Pharisees. It awakened some, as we we could read on, uh, but we won't. John had preached and some who were soldiers repented and were baptized and said, what do we do now? Do we keep soldiering? And others heard and believed. What were those Pharisees thinking? This guy's a lunatic. He lives out here. He eats bugs. He dresses like a weirdo. Uh, I'm not going to listen to him. God doesn't talk through people like that. God wouldn't use you. He would use us. We've got these lovely garments. We've studied. We own really big Bibles. There was something in their mind And something in their heart. And Jesus unmasks it here. 
when Jesus says some had been baptized and they responded with joy, yet, back in Luke 7, some had not been baptized, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. There are separate responses to John. The litmus test, the fork in the road. The faith response and the response of unbelief. Some repented and some did not. They did not submit to John's baptism and repentance. John Calvin, the pastor in Geneva, said this about those stubborn Pharisees. He said, the substance of this passage is that the common people and the publicans, the tax collectors, gave glory to God while the scribes, flattering themselves with confidence in their own knowledge, cared little for what Christ said. See, Christ is the one explaining this. Christ is the one putting a caption under John the Baptist. John's already been preaching. John's in prison. John's about done. So here, on this occasion, Jesus had just finished talking to disciples of John. He's speaking to the crowd. This is what John the Baptist was all about. He was God's man for the hour. He's the greatest of the prophets. Here comes the Messiah. Did you repent to believe? Have you prepared the way? Because here I am. That's how strategic this passage is. So Calvin says that those people that didn't get baptized, they didn't just disbelieve John. They disbelieved God. And they reject the Messiah. Or again, talking about those who disbelieved Phil Riken says they did that since they did not see any need to repent of their sin they did not accept God's grace in the gospel they thought salvation was theirs by right and they were offended by the idea that it came as a gift for sinners they were caught up in their self-righteousness they would not hear or heed John the Baptist That's a big deal. And we know that because that's where Jesus goes next. He's looking out at this crowd, which included some who were baptized and some that weren't. And he continues speaking in verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what they are like? Here it comes. Be ready. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. And he fills that in. We'll we'll go slowly here. First, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is talking about the childish behavior of those around Jesus and around John the Baptist, around both. It's interesting that Jesus knew the games kids played in those days. Do you know the games kids play in these days? I hope Peekaboo is still a classic because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see my granddaughter soon and I'll want to play something. Kids often play what they see around them. You know, they play house or if it's a time of war, sometimes they play army. In the ancient world, they saw a lot of weddings and they saw a lot of funerals. So a lot of times they play, let's play wedding and I'll have dance and happiness and food and you can be this and you can be that. Or other times the kids would play a funeral. They saw a lot of death. We don't see as much today, so maybe that's hard to imagine, a child. 
If we lived in the Middle Ages or knew about the bubonic plague, we would know that children played and talked about the plague. They had a song about that, but I, I better not digress. Here, the children would play one of these two things, but you know what? There were some kids that didn't want to play anything. They were never satisfied. Jesus makes an observation about that when he talks how the kids would mock the guys on the sideline. Hey, we were willing to play wedding and we played the flute, but you didn't dance. So we said, let's play funeral, and we were singing sadly, and you didn't, you didn't start crying, you didn't play along. What's with you? You're just on the sidelines full of yourself. You see, Jesus brings this up because he wants to make clear these religious leaders that rejected John the Baptist and rejected Jesus are on the sidelines. They're not accepting the work of God in their day. And it's interesting that these Pharisees commit both those errors. They reject John the Baptist and they reject Jesus. Let's talk about the rejection of God's ways as Jesus goes on to tell it first after the childhood game. He says in verse 33, for, because he's connecting, he's going to explain how they didn't play funeral and how they didn't play wedding. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, kind of somber, and you say he has a demon. Okay, that scenario, you wouldn't buy it. And you, you called him a name. He was God's prophet. Verse 34, Jesus says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus knows exactly what these people were doing in their rejection of God's ways. John the Baptist was too strict, so they wrote him off. God would never use him. And here comes Jesus, full of good news. He reaches out and touches the people in greatest need. The healthy don't need a physician, the sick do. Jesus spent time with sinners who knew they were outside of God's ways. Jesus went to them graciously. And you know what? The idea of a wedding really fits because we know Jesus is the bridegroom. And there was a lot of joy in his coming at the first advent. But Jesus says to those who had rejected John the Baptist and him, he says, you guys aren't having anything to do with the ways of God. Verse 30 makes it very clear. They had rejected the purpose of God for themselves. That word to reject means to displace, to set aside, to abrogate, to annul, to violate, to swerve from, to reject. And Jesus uses that same word later on in Luke. We'll get to it in a few weeks' time. In Luke 10, verse 16, Jesus says, The one who hears you, speaking to his disciples, hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. My friends, it's not safe to ignore a prophet of God. And it is certainly a grave sin to reject the Son of God when he speaks. 
This is a really important passage. It was a test for the Jews of that day and John the Baptist and the arrival of Jesus. God's ways are justified in the end. After Jesus is holding their feet to the fire with those analogies and those statements, how does this particular passage end in verse 35? Something cryptic. It it stymies a lot of Bible readers, but let's take it up. Verse 35, Jesus said, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And actually, the next passages will help unfold and give examples of this. But just sticking with verse 35, what do we make of it? Wisdom is justified by all her children. There are progeny, there are offspring that show that the parent, what the parent was like. If you have some that have come to faith that have been forgiven of their sins, if they've repented and believed and are now filled with joy, that shows the effectiveness of the means. Wisdom is justified by all her children. As uh, David Jeffrey put it in his commentary, Jesus is saying there's no wisdom in the Pharisees, in their own standoffishness. But there is much wisdom in the character of both John's disciples and Jesus' disciples and their respective means of declaring what God requires. Those who heard John and obeyed were in step with God. Those who welcomed Jesus and were following him were justifying God's sending of him. The Pharisees, in their resisting, weren't accomplishing much but revealing their stubborn, unbelieving hearts. And to reject John and to reject Jesus is to reject God. Oh, how we should learn from this. If we've been shown the way to be right with God... Have we taken it? Paul wrote to a young man named Timothy, and we have two letters of Paul to Timothy. The second one has a wonderful statement about God's word, how powerful and effective it is. But in leading up to that, Paul made a comment to Timothy about God's word and God's wisdom. Listen, 2 Timothy 3.15 says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able, Timothy, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You're not wise for salvation just by reading the Bible or owning a Bible or going to Bible college or or wearing Bible clothing or gathering with Bible people. See, I'm trying to make connections so that we feel it. The scriptures are able to show you Christ and to know Jesus is to have life. Paul writes to Timothy, these scriptures will make you wise for salvation if you hear them and read them and find Jesus is the Messiah and come to Jesus. Just being religious isn't enough. And oh, those Jewish leaders were hindered pridefully so 
God would never use him. He's too strict. He's an oddball. He's a weirdo. Jesus, well, he hangs out with sinners. He talks about God's grace and gifts. That's too easy. I know what I need to do. I have my checklist. I have my understanding. It's a rejection of God's way. It's all so simple. God so loved the world that he sent his son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish. And when he sent his son, he first sent the last greatest prophet to ready the way and to wake the people up. And Jesus steps onto the stage and talks about good news and joyful news and abundant life. He talked, I said, I am the resurrection and the life. Good stuff. But to reject God's ways is a huge mistake. Let's, let's highlight three things in closing here. A warning, a lesson, and an encouragement. I think we need all of them. And let's do the warning first, okay? Unbelief is bad. Unbelief. Someone who will not believe what the Bible says. Someone who resists what God is saying through a preacher, through documents, through God's people. Unbelief is not thoughtful. It's not okay. It's not rational. It's wicked. Del Ralph Davis, a a respected Old Testament scholar, put it that plainly. He said, unbelief is not thoughtful and rational, but twisted and perverse, he says. Unbelief. And, and, And I'm not picking on any one individual, but if you're sitting here in church saying, you know, Jesus, he just doesn't cut it. That's not the God I know. He wouldn't say that through his son. Hang on. To disbelieve Jesus and this gospel puts you at odds like those who resisted him when he first came. Unbelief. We're so tolerant as a people. We say, okay, take your time, think it through, and and we don't want to ever rush someone. But when they come to a conclusion and they're camped and staked out their position and it's one of disbelief, that is bad. Bad news. Now, in saying this, I'm not saying we, we force people to decide in a moment, in an instant, for Jesus. I'm not saying that we, we become compassionless people or impatient witnesses. I think Jesus is, is really showing how the unbelief of those who rejected John in the preparation and rejected him is really bad. Because you're rejecting God. Jesus took a lot of time to make this clear for the religious people who were listening to him. So this warning, I I think, is just an invitation. If you've been on the fence, if you're not yet sure about committing your way to Christ, give up your resistance. Give up disbelieving. 
Come to Jesus. Just take hold. Step towards him by faith. He will meet you. The lesson in this passage, I think, is is pretty clear from beginning to end. And the, the summary statement of verse 35 talks about it. Wisdom is justified by all her children. And uh, this whole justification comment came out in verse 29. Those who have been baptized, they declared God just having been baptized. Part of this story is learning that God's ways are just and right. The way God works is his way. He's God. And he works by way of the cross. He works by way of the preached word. John the Baptist out just preaching? Don't resist God's ways. Don't question them uh, unendingly. His methods, as one has said, his methods are right for every time and every place. For you, for your children, for your grandchildren, should the Lord's return tarry. There is salvation in no other name. You know, when Peter was preaching, you remember Peter, the disciple that was a little bit hard to domesticate and to become this great apostle, but he got there. In Acts chapter 4, Peter is speaking to the council. Uh, He's not by the River Jordan like John the Baptist. He's on their turf, in their court. They're all dressed up, and Peter says this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter calls out the council. The message of the New Testament, the Gospels, the book of Acts, the letters, and the book of Revelation. It's all about Jesus, the crucified one who will wear the crown and will someday judge all human beings. Did you know me? I never knew you. Depart from me. Well, God's ways are always right. And here's the encouragement. We'll end with this. Be encouraged, even though others may always be dissatisfied with you, as they were with John the Baptist, as they were with Jesus. You're in good company if the world doesn't always approve of you. There's two sides to that coin. I don't want you to be discouraged. Uh, J.C. Ryle said, the lack of man's favor is no proof that God is displeased. I remember when I was going to leave my job in the corporate world and go to seminary. Uh, You know, in in the corporate world, I'd I'd done pretty well for myself, doubled my salary in two years and had a corner office near my manager. And, oh, I'm leaving. I'm going to seminary. I'm getting married. And then I had to tell my father-in-law, yeah, I want to be a Baptist preacher rather than a successful uh, productivity analyst for ITT Corp. It was it was kind of hard, but to his credit, they uh, were very patient and kind. But not everybody understands what a Christian does as he follows the Lord. As you speak the truth, people will push back. My God would never do that. There is no such place as hell. People will disagree. Why do I call this an encouragement? We have a heads up. 
As the master was treated, so shall the servant be. So we ought to give up any idea of trying to please everyone. That's very hard to do and impossible. And we should understand that the Lord, who powerfully changed lives then, is with us now. And he's the one that leads us and guides us. Be content to walk in the way of the Lord. His ways are just. And it's the only way to life. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for that figure of John the Baptist, how often we overlook him in his strategic role. Father, we thank you that your word has come to us afresh today to test us, to test our hearts, to see if we're right with you. Oh, Father, help us to be right with you. Make us clear. May we be willing not just to walk out to the Jordan and be baptized by a prophet, but may we be willing to bow and turn our lives over to the Messiah, the Son of God, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. May we not care what the world thinks. If your ways are right, may we walk in them. Father, we pray that your word, your gospel would bear fruit in our midst and beyond for your glory. We thank you for the word of truth, and we long to see our Savior face to face. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen.